Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River on this very first day of March 2024. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up later in the program, I'll talk with the state climatologist Justin Glisson to find out what's behind this roller coaster weather we've been having and if we should expect more of the drastic ups and downs in the coming weeks. Also, IPR's Sheila Brummer introduces us to a family of Ukrainian refugees in Iowa two years after the start of that war. But first, it's been a busy week at the Iowa State House. Let's check in with Katerina Sestarek, IPR state government reporter, and Grant Gerlach, IPR education reporter. Grant, Katerina, hello to you. Hi, Ben. Hey, Ben. Let's start off, uh, Katerina, with you, how lawmakers are advancing legislation having to do with Iowa's three public universities and the body that governs them, the Board of Regents. Right. So last night, um, the Iowa House passed a bill that would cap in-state tuition increases at the University of Iowa, Iowa State, and UNI. Um, So tuition couldn't go up by more than 3% a year. And for students um, who are getting a four-year degree, their tuition, for most of them, wouldn't be able to go up while they're in school. Um, So there's that. And then also this would put into law um, some restrictions around diversity, equity, and inclusion programming that the Board of Regents had already agreed to make these changes because the um, Republicans in the legislature were concerned about DEI programs getting too large um, and too expensive. And so they um, are now putting those restrictions into state law. Um, And so the Republicans behind this bill, and I think it's notable, too, that a few Republicans voted against it, but the ones who voted for it are saying, you know, they think the universities have gotten distracted by diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that um, this will help pull back on that, and that it's also just the cost of universities has gone up too much. Um, But, you know, Democrats are saying, Um, DEI is important for students to help all students succeed in college um, and that they that Republicans have turned it into this sort of boogeyman um, and also that this bill doesn't do anything while Democrats support capping tuition this bill doesn't do anything to give more money to the universities to help backfill that um, that revenue that would be lost. Also this week, and I think also yesterday, uh, you covered here something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Katerina, tell us about that. Right. So this is a bill that says um, state and local laws can't infringe on people's exercise of their religion unless there's a compelling government interest to do so. Um, And this um, is very controversial. You know, Republicans who supported it say that this is something that is needed to protect people's religious freedom. And Democrats say, you know, religious freedom already has strong constitutional protections and that the way this bill is written, it opens the door to discrimination against um, LGBTQ Iowans, particularly, and others in healthcare and other services, um, and that that the state shouldn't support discriminate. You know, basically, that someone could just say, "Well, I need to do this because it's my religion," and then thereby infringe on someone else's rights. And Democrats say that that's not right, and major business groups have opposed it as well. Um, and Republicans say they don't think it's going to have that dramatic of an impact. Um, But this bill is going to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk, and she's expected to sign it. Mm -hmm. 
Let's move to a number of proposed measures having to do with K-12 through education. Republicans in the Iowa House passed a bill that would require all schools to teach about fetal development. Tell us about that, Katerina. Right. So this requirement would start in seventh grade, um, and it specifically requires the showing of a video that is similar to this Baby Olivia video that was produced by an anti-abortion group. Um, And it kind of is just this like animated video that shows a sperm fertilizing an egg and then this um, development stages of the fetus. Um, But this is something that opponents say has some medical inaccuracies in it and that it's misleading. Um, it says that life begins at fertilization, which is something that is, you know, not everyone believes that and not that's not necessarily a scientific fact. Um, and so this so there's just a lot of controversy around this as well. Um, and Republicans ultimately voted for it because they say it'll um, they hope it'll inform students choices in the future about pregnancy and birth. Grant, for weeks we've been talking about um, uh, AEAs. These are the providers of special education services for school districts across the state. Uh, there's been some changes there in, a what, a House bill this week? Yeah, the, the House actually moved forward and passed its version of changes to the AEAs. Like you said, we've been talking about this for weeks, ever since the governor's condition of the state speech, where she raised this issue and made her own proposals. But what passed in the House has a lot of differences from what the governor originally proposed. Uh, For instance, in her proposal, schools would have been able to take the funding that currently goes to the AEAs, and they could have spent it any number of other places to receive special education services or uh, media services, professional development, that kind of thing. Under this House bill, the AEAs would still be the mandatory provider of special education services for all public school districts in the state of Iowa. In fact, all private school districts as well. They would be the only special ed services provider in the state. That's what the arrangement is now. And the the supporters of this bill in the House say that they wanted to provide certainty to families who receive those services who have raised so many concerns about uh, how this could disrupt the services they receive, how it could potentially erode the financial health of the AEAs and potentially disrupt other services they provide. They wanted to provide that kind of stability and certainty in the system. And so that's how they've shaped this bill. It does make some changes. It puts more authority in the hands of the Department of Education to oversee the AEAs, Uh, The current AEA boards that make policy decisions for the AEAs would be advisory boards, and the sort of authoritative functions that they serve would be moved to the Department of Education. Um, So it's not the system status quo. Schools would also get some flexibility with the funding that currently goes to media and education services. In a few years, they would be able to decide to spend that money in other places, But when it comes to special ed, which is the majority of what the AEAs do and where a lot of the concerns were coming coming from around these proposals, that system will basically stay in place as it has been. 
Okay. Uh, also in K-12 through education, grant a bill advancing this week in the Iowa House that would make it easier for school districts in the state to allow teachers and other staff members to carry guns. Tell us about some of the specifics uh, of this bill. Well, this is part of what House Republicans say they're doing in response to, in particular, the, the shooting at Perry High School in January that killed two people. And there have been other shootings in recent years as well at East High School in Des Moines and starts right here, the education program in Des Moines. So what they're proposing to do in, in this particular bill is to create a professional permit that educators could receive that would allow them to carry a gun in school. Um, they would have to go through training. That would include medical response training and how to use the firearm and how to respond to a, uh, an active shooter, uh, how to communicate with law enforcement in an emergency situation, and that and annual background checks would be part of this as well. And if they go through that training and the district says they can carry a, a firearm in the school, they would receive qualified immunity. They would be protected from lawsuits um, based on liability of using that firearm in a school setting to respond to um, an attack or a dangerous situation in the school. And the reason they included that in the bill is because schools actually have the ability under law to arm teachers now, but the schools that have tried it found out that their insurers would drop coverage And so what House Republicans say they're doing with this bill is to try to restore that ability for those schools to purchase insurance if they're going to arm their schools. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's what what they're trying to do with this bill. What do opposition voices on this issue say? Well, Democrats say the answer to school safety when it comes to guns should not be putting more guns in schools. It should be passing gun control laws like red flag laws and investing more in violence prevention programs and mental health services, things that would prevent violence from happening in schools instead of arming teachers to respond to these events. Also in the area of K-12 education, lawmakers passing a pair of bills this week, a grant that would reshape uh, curriculum. Tell us about that. Well, these are kind of interesting because uh, one of them looks at social studies requirements for schools, and the other is more generally just education standards that schools have to follow. And there was a lot of discussion about the social studies bill. This would really revamp how schools teach history and civics. And what's unique about it is that it includes a long list of very specific things that schools would have to cover in social studies and civics and government and history classes, starting in elementary school all the way through high school. For instance, starting in um, fifth grade, they would have to learn about some specific documents. A lot of them are around the nation's founding, like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but also writings by Thomas Paine and Alexis de Tocqueville and the Federalist Papers, um, which gets pretty specific. And Democrats were saying, you know, we share the goal of trying to teach students about our country and our history and to make them proud of the United States. But these are things that are just too complicated to cover in an elementary classroom in the kind of depth where students would really appreciate it. But Republicans insisted they want to put this into law. They want schools to cover these topics because, in their view, students don't have an appreciation for American history and 
um, and their role in uh, American government, and they want to instill that in them through the classroom. Mm-hmm. A couple minutes left to, to continue. We'll get to as many of these as we, we can here. Uh, but uh, those listeners uh, wanting to find out the updates, uh, Grant and Katerina and others at IPR, putting the updates at IPR.org. Do keep track of that. You can also sign up for our newsletter there. Uh, we have time for this, uh, Katerina. Republicans in the Iowa Senate passing a bill this week to require Iowa businesses to use the federal e verify system. Of course, immigration, hugely controversial uh, across the country and in here in Iowa. Yeah, so this would make it that if um, a business was caught twice within three years knowingly hiring undocumented immigrants, they could lose their business license. Um, hiring undocumented immigrants is already a federal offense, but um, this would put a state-level business penalty in place, and some states have done this. Um, but Republicans, you know, have been trying to do this in the Senate for many years, and, you know, they say that it'll, they think it'll help crack down on undocumented immigrants coming into Iowa. Um, and Democrats are saying that, and also they say that it's unfair to businesses that have to compete with those that hire um, undocumented immigrants for low wages. Um, but Democrats say that, you know, this hasn't doesn't seem to have done anything in other states to stop people from crossing the southern border um, into the United States, and that it could lead to um, major problems for businesses and um, also for just anyone who um, someone might see and think they look like an immigrant. And then are people going to be reporting people to the Workforce Development Department because of their skin color? Um, so it's it's not clear if this will pass in the House this year or not. The Senate has passed it before. Uh, let's have you each uh, briefly tell us what you'll be watching in the week ahead. Katerina. Um, there's just going to be, you know, I think several more days of long debates. So I'm just waiting to see what they'll take up next week. Okay. Grant, on the education front, what are you watching? School funding. It passed the House, but the Senate has not said where they want to land on school funding. And uh, this is supposed to have been decided within uh, the first 30 days of the session. So they're late deciding on what school funding will be for next year. A lot of this is hung up over the issues around the AEAs and um, teacher pay and some other issues that are still up in the air. So we're waiting to see how that's going to land. All right. Uh, Grant Gerlach, IPR's education reporter. Katerina Sestarek, our state government reporter at IPR, giving us an update on uh, some of the uh, bills advancing at the State House uh, this week. And uh, again, uh, do check out IPR.org uh, to find out the latest as uh, Grant and Katerina and others uh, write up some fine um, updates there. Grant, Katerina, thanks for now. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Coming up after a short break, I'll talk with the state climatologist Justin Glisson to find out what's behind the roller coaster weather we've been having and if we should expect more of those ups and downs. That's when we return, and make sure to pledge your support to IPR. Back in just a few moments. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. What a weather whiplash hit the state this week. Record warmth on Monday, highs close to 80. Then along came that uh, strong cold front crossing the state in a matter of hours, making it feel like winter again. Justin Glisson joins me now, uh, the state climatologist of Iowa. Hi, Justin. Happy meteorological spring, Ben. (laughs) Walk us through what we experienced this week and why. Yes, so definitely a weather seesaw. We had temperatures approaching February's all-time record high, which is 82 degrees, with some stations in southwestern Iowa, just one degree off of that record. So if you look at the statewide average temperature for February, it was actually what we expect climatologically for March. So that just tells you how warm temperatures were. So with those 70s and 80s earlier this week, we had a transition, a, a, a pretty significant transition, 50 to 60 degree uh, stretch of temperatures between those highs and then that Arctic cold front coming through, bringing very windy, very dry air, also colder temperatures. And then as we move through the next several days, we're going to see another warm-up. So again, high amplitude weather events with those troughs and ridges that are very close that plow through the United States. Because those systems are so close together, the wind gradient is also very strong. So we're seeing very warm temperatures coupled with windy conditions, and we're getting into those red flag warnings. Yeah, red flag warnings, unusual for for Iowa. Um, The the high temperatures, dry conditions, uh, danger of fire. Is this an example, Justin, of extreme weather due to climate change? It's part of that. Uh, If we look at this current season, it's a strong El Nino, meaning warmer sea surface temperatures in the Pacific. Those sea surface temperatures fire thunderstorms, but they also produce a warmer atmosphere. So if you couple the structural climate change that we have with the atmospheric temperature rising, and you you compound that with these warmer winter times that we see with strong El Ninos, that's where you see very warm conditions. So we've been talking about the behavior that we've seen in meteorological winter, December, January, February, the third warmest on record, seven degrees above average. We've been calling it the lost winter, just given how warm things have been. February looks like the second warmest and the third driest on record. So definitely a climate change component, but also amped up with this strong El Nino. I'm sure you saw the study from the University of Nebraska in Lincoln showing a decline in blizzard occurrence. So does this mean not only this winter is lost, but future ones likely to be? Absolutely. If you look at the fastest warming season that we have across basically the upper Midwest, it is winter. So we're seeing warmer winters. We're also seeing uh, uh, more extremes. Even with a warming winter, we're seeing more polar vortex outbreaks, those Arctic air outbreaks that we've seen over the last several winters. We didn't really have one uh, have a long stretch uh, if you consider that January 12th uh, through the 21st, 18 degrees below average. And then The weeks before and the weeks after were 18 degrees above average. So January was generally a wash. But as we've talked about in previous interviews, our extremes are becoming more extreme. And when we have more extreme temperature gradients, that's where you see uh, more uh, of these uh, temperature swings along with the potential for more snow, more severe weather in the shoulder seasons, getting into winter and exiting winter as well. 
Okay, and we're on the upswing now into a a nice weekend, right, Justin? We are, and if the outlooks hold, March is looking like it should be a warm month as well. Okay, Justin Glisson, State Climatologist of Iowa. Thanks for your insights, Justin. Take care. Thank you, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. The majority of Iowa's rural hospitals no longer have labor and delivery services. That's according to a new report. IPR's health reporter Natalie Krebs joins me now. Natalie also reports for Side Effects Public Media, a health reporting collaboration based in the Midwest. Hi, Natalie. Hello, Ben. Tell us, who issued this report and what did it find? So it was the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform. They're a nonprofit that focuses on basically policy and and payment and budget and such. And they looked they looked at federal data um, going up until last month to kind of see how many rural hospitals across the country have closed their labor and delivery units, and then also kind of just looked at things as to see how many of those hospitals were, you know, reporting losses in general and such. And overall found more than 50% of rural hospitals nationwide have closed their labor and delivery units. And when it comes to Iowa, that percentage was 61% of rural Iowa hospitals no longer have OB services or just don't have OB services in general. Hmm. Natalie, tell us what's driving this trend. Right. So there are a number of things that are driving this trend. Um, you know, births are down in rural areas. It's really expensive to run OB units. It's a 24-7 unit. Um, and so you need like this certain volume of births to really keep up those costs of having those doctors and nurses basically on call at all times. There's a lot of concern about things like Medicaid reimbursement rates aren't for births aren't as high as they need to be. So hospitals are losing money on Medicaid births. I've also been told by hospitals they're losing money from commercial insurers as well. And then just the fact that it's really hard for a lot of rural hospitals to recruit OBGYNs or even family practice doctors with obstetrics to come out to some of these rural areas to work. Um, again, just really hard shift. They have to be kind of on call at all times. A lot of doctors just don't want to do that. It's too hard on them. Yeah. And so what are the implications for rural communities, for the people in rural communities, uh, those who need prenatal postpartum care as well in rural parts of the state here in Iowa or, or other parts of the country? Right. This has been an ongoing issue for a while now, a couple of decades. Um, So we have seen researchers look into this, particularly some really good research coming out of the University of Minnesota for a while that has basically tied the closure of these units to things like more women giving birth outside of the hospital or in an emergency room, which isn't necessarily equipped to deliver babies the way OB units are. Um, it's also, you know, tied it to an increase in, you know, preterm births. So, you know, and a decrease in prenatal and postpartum coverage. So, you know, there's been a number of health effects that have been tied to the fact that, you know, when OB units close, it, it can have really health impacts on the people who live in those communities. Yeah. But you also found, Natalie, some rural hospitals who are bucking the trend, making it work somehow. Right. And, you know, there's recent research from the University of Minnesota has, you know, kind of found a survey of hospital administrators, found kind of a third of hospitals, rural hospitals that are still delivering babies are losing money. And they've kind of 
answered the question saying of why, saying basically our community needs this service. We keep running it even though we're running it at a loss. And so, you know, you see hospitals that just say it's important. We're going to keep it going no matter what. And then, you know, recently I profiled a hospital in Clarion, Iowa Specialty Hospital in Clarion, that actually delivers 600 babies a year, which is a volume of babies that's worth that, you know, makes it a profitable service for them. And kind of what they did was manage a local OBGYN, you know, establish some maternal care clinics in neighboring towns a couple decades ago. Um, so you had women in neighboring towns, you can go to those clinics and then they come deliver at Clarion. They've been able to basically get their birth volume to grow for years. That seems like it's kind of more of a unique case of really bucking the trend. But just overall, you know, you really do see some of these rural hospitals really just trying to make it work, kind of coming up with ways to keep their labor and delivery services going. Yeah. Going forward, is there enough concern out there that perhaps policymakers are uh, willing to make changes? Um, you know, mentioned Medicaid, Medicaid payments. Uh, they are uh, doing other things to reverse this trend? Yeah, there's been, when I talk to experts in hospitals about this, there's been kind of calls on Congress to increase those Medicaid reimbursement rates for births. Um, also just calls for commercial insurers to increase those rates as well, as well as kind of calling on policymakers to do more things to recruit doctors to rural areas as well. I overall have kind of seen some small things, but I haven't seen any kind of real big push or kind of big policy push that I think would really affect hospitals and really, you know, kind of change the trajectory of what's going on with OB units. Um, and it, it, you know, with the way that things are going now and hospitals are kind of strapped for cash, particularly in rural areas, it seems like this trend of OB services closing in rural areas is just really going to continue. IPR's health reporter Natalie Krebs, also reporting for Side Effects Public Media. Natalie, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. We have to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer on this very first day of March 2024. More than 6 million people have fled Ukraine since the Russian invasion just over two years ago. More than half a million Ukrainians have been processed to live here in the U.S., some of them right here in Iowa. IPR's Western Iowa reporter Sheila Brummer joins me now with this story that goes past the numbers and statistics of this war to how it connects with our Iowa community of how one woman has brought dozens to live in northwest Iowa from Ukraine. Hi, Sheila. Nice to have you on again. Yeah, it's great to be here. Happy Friday. It's happy Friday to you. It's really worth checking out your report at IPR.org. Make that pledge of support while you're there. But you focus, you know, really turn this into a human story with one family and uh, the story of a woman who has brought dozens of Ukrainians out of that war zone. Tell us about the family. Well, this family, it is Maria and Fedor Todakash, and they moved here over a year ago. And they've been in Sioux County, just outside of Orange City, between Orange City and Sioux Center. And they came here 
for a fresh start. They needed to get out of a war zone and they're here and they have their five-year-old daughter and they actually plan on staying here in the United States. Very hard situation and uh, I not see to ending this war. Uh, we not see future in Ukraine. How did they end up here? And this is where we talk about Martha Hulshoff, who is a hero to uh, so many people, I have to believe. Well, Martha has a sister who lives in Western Ukraine, and she's a missionary. And she's lived in Ukraine for 25 years. She married a pastor, and they have a church where some of their parishioners they're the ones that have moved to Sioux County. And Martha in Sioux County has helped with documentation. She's helped get them airplane tickets. And it's quite a bit of documentation. At first, it was easier when the war first broke out. But since mm -hmm. then, it has been quite the process. It can now take three months to bring someone over before it was just a couple of days. And Martha has actually helped 120 refugees resettle in Northwest Iowa. Uh, that's amazing, becoming a part of our community uh, here in Iowa. And uh, you had a chance to visit with this family. Yes, I did. I got to go to their home. They live in a, a little acreage between the two different towns that I told you about. And their five-year-old daughter was there. And they're really into music. And the daughter was playing the piano. She She's mm. five years old. And when I showed up, she was wearing a traditional gown. You can see a picture of the family on the website story. And they shared their story. There was a little bit of a language barrier. They actually used a translation service through Google. I could understand them very well. They actually had a hard time understanding me, maybe because I talked too fast at times. But <laughs> they, they were telling me their story. And Maria, for example, she considered herself a big city person. And she goes from living in a bigger city. She moved to Western Ukraine, where her husband was from originally, which is more rural. And now they live in Sioux County, which is extremely rural. So she said that was kind of hard to get used to. She also was a cosmetologist by trade. She's not doing that in Northwest Iowa. She's working cleaning houses right now. But she said, so that was kind of use, you know, hard for her to get used to this fast city pace. And now it's a much slower lifestyle, but they really enjoy it. Fedyer, he actually is an expert in trees. He did that in Ukraine and he's working for a landscaping company, working with trees and, and doing other things during the growing season. He's also doing a couple other businesses as well. And they're taking all the money they have that, that they have extra and they're sending it back to Ukraine to help their family. Maria's family, they still live in an area that there are rocket attacks at night. It's extremely scary. She has a sister whose husband is a soldier, and he's been gone for an extended period of time fighting the war. And I have to believe you said 120, over 120 Ukrainians now living in Iowa. They have connections, families and friend, um, family members and friends who have lost their lives and been injured in this war, I'm imagining. Yeah, and that's what's extremely hard. You know, Martha said it's been extremely hard. And I think we're going to hear a little bit about her talking about how her heart goes out to the Ukrainians who had so much that they've lost. There's some that have lost absolutely everything, their business, their house, everything. Um, I could tell you some really bad stories about what's going on over there, um, the, the people that are being killed. or You know, I think one of the hardest things for me is when the Ukrainians here they hurt because they've lost a loved one back home and they can't go back for the funeral. Or there was a young boy here. He was really sad one day and didn't want to go to school. 
You know why? One of his best friends got blown up. And you know the only way they recognized him? Because of the bottom of his feet. I wish you could interview them all. There's one that, um, a mom and a daughter, and uh, yeah, her nephew got blown up. And they, yeah, they're from Nicopole. She would tell me every single night when I was talking to her, every night, she goes, I never knew if I'd wake up or not because there was bombs blown, going overhead every single night. We never knew if we'd wake up, be alive or dead. I mean, that's what they lived with. So hard to... To hear those accounts of putting yourself in that situation and then uh, having someone like Martha Halshoff uh, volunteer to, to help you out of that war zone with your family. One quote you highlighted, Sheila, from Martha, people don't believe in miracles. I've seen miracle after miracle through this. And, and these people, as you point out in your reporting, they've become like family to her, haven't they? Oh yeah, they have. And she said there's there's some people that she talks to before they come over. And there are times that she's talking to someone to bring them over to the United States and then she doesn't hear from them and she doesn't know what happened to them. For her, that's that's even harder to know that there's people that want to get out and she doesn't know if they're they're dead or alive. There's a photo in your report that uh, when people listen to it at IPR.org, that's interesting. I'd like you to ask you to to tell us the story behind it. It's uh, the one with a boat crossing a river uh, and next to the boat, a destroyed bridge. Yeah, Maria actually had been volunteering through the church. And this is Martha's brother-in-law church in Western Ukraine. And they brought supplies to the eastern part of the country. And they took the supplies by boat because like you said, the bridge was blown away. And they go and they they deliver these supplies and the boat is, it looks kind of like a rickety little boat. They deliver the supplies and then 15 minutes later after they leave, a rocket attacked that area. So they believe that someone on the other side told the Russians that they were there. Pretty scary. You've described how uh, Martha Holshoff, a volunteer in Iowa here, has been so instrumental in having um, these Ukrainians get out of the war zone. But uh, she's connected with a lot of people who are helping in this network, aren't they? That's true, yeah. There's actually another organization, Samaritan's Purse, that's helped other churches in the area bring over refugees. And Verlin DeWitt is a, a member of that church, and he's helped the refugees. And actually, years ago, he helped bring Laotian refugees to the United States. With the Vietnam War refugees, you know, they had instant citizenship once they got here. There were a lot of them and we could easily accommodate it. And uh, Robert Ray was just a giant in this. But with the uh, Afghan and uh, later the Ukrainian situations, you apply through the U.S. State Department and it, it's, a, it's a parole that's given for, for two years, a humanitarian parole but there's no guarantee that they can stay. And that's Verland of Wit. And yes, there's no guarantee that the Ukrainian refugees can stay. Now, you heard from Maria and Fedger, they want to stay in the United States. They're not sure if they're going to stay in Northwest Iowa, but they want to be a part of a new country. And this anniversary, two-year anniversary coming as Ukraine, their homeland, experiencing a range of setbacks in its efforts to expel uh, Russia from its territory. Let's go back uh, to the couple, the family there. They have the little one as well, Maria and Fedger uh, Todakash there, because you mentioned they're musicians and you collected um, uh, some some sound of their what, a family performance? What did you witness? Well, music is so important. So is their faith. They're very into their church. And they're actually part of a praise team where they perform and, and, and sing music that inspires them. And they actually 
Fedor played guitar and Maria, um, the two of them sang together. And it was just a beautiful song that was just so poetic. It was called Here I Am to Worship. And they sing in you, you, their Ukrainian native language. And some of the words say, light of the world, you step down into darkness, open my eyes, let me see. Their story, there's so many stories, but they were so open and they allowed me to be in their home and to tell their story. So I'm so thankful for them and I wish them continued good luck. Okay, we'll go out with that music performed by Maria and Fedyar Todakash. Uh, Sheila Brummer, tremendous reporting, our Western Iowa reporter here at IPR, really bringing us the human face of this tragic war in Ukraine and how Ukrainians are finding perhaps a new start here in the United States, in fact, here in Iowa. Sheila, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you, Ben. And that brings us to the end of this News Buzz edition of River to River on this very first day of March 2024. Did you know that on this date in 1968, Johnny Cash married June Carter? Well, when it comes to marrying the best in new music with old favorites, IPR Studio One is your daily soundtrack. Tony Daner joins us, our <laughs> Studio One host. Welcome uh, back to Groove Us Into the Weekend, Tony. Here is something new from uh, an Iowa native, Iowa City native, Ben, somebody probably familiar to many of our listeners, Bridget Carney, who is a native of Iowa City, founding member of the band Lake Street Dive, main songwriter for that band, She's got a couple of solo records out as well, including a new one coming April 12th. It's called Comeback Kid. And this single that we're going to hear actually came out shortly before Christmas, but it's going to be on this record. And the song title is a reference to a quote by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, The quote is, Try to pose for yourself this task, not to think of a polar bear, and you will see that the cursed thing will come to mind every minute. So keep that in mind. Imagine what your personal polar bear is and sit back and listen to this song by Bridget Carney, Don't Think About the Polar Bear. Iowa City native Bridget Carney, don't think about the polar bear. You know, Tony, it wasn't too long ago. It doesn't seem like too long ago. I think it was that uh, Bridget and the rest of a very young <laughs> Lake Street dive were playing just on the street corners in Iowa City during the um, a jazz festival there. Absolutely. Yep. Very excited for all of them. We have time for one more. What do you got? So here's a song that was recorded 54 years ago that is being released finally for the first time. It's the great James Brown. This song was recorded in August of 1970. The James Brown Orchestra had kind of started to fall apart a few months earlier. So he put together this new band kind of quickly with some 
Bonafide musical legends joining him, the great Bootsy Collins on the bass, his brother Catfish Collins playing guitar, and Clyde Stubblefield, the funky drummer, also appearing in this new band with James Brown. I don't know what the story is here, Ben, on why this song (laughs) sat around for over 50 years and is just now getting released, but I'm not complaining either because I'm just glad it's here and that we get to hear it now. James Brown with We Got to Change. James Brown with We Got to Change. I'm going to change that a little bit and say we've got to pledge to IPR during this fun we drive. We sure do. Yep. Uh, Tony, we'll go out with James Brown and um, and uh, remind us, uh, Tony, quickly, how can people uh, tune in to IPR Studio One? Yeah, Studio One tracks Monday through Saturday night at 7 o'clock. Mark, CC, and I have your daily soundtrack. And Studio One All Access, all three of us, Saturday afternoons at 1 o'clock. Okay, Tony Daner, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Today's program produced by Caitlin Troutman with help from Danny Gear. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Have a wonderful weekend.